Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 333, The Doolittle Raid, Part 4, The Pacific War Takes Shape. The Americans had answered the challenge thrown down at Pearl Harbor. The raiding pilots' post-action reports were later scrutinized by Army Air Force intelligence officers seeking out their next target. And that would be, but not until November 24th of 1944, an aircraft plant of the Nakajima Aircraft Company. On that day, the manufacturing building was hit by 111 B-29 bombers, numbers Doolittle could only dream of in 1942. Still, the Americans had answered kind for kind, and how would Tokyo respond? Pretty savagely, as it turned out. Not that Admiral Halsey and Task Force 16 were sticking around to find out. Though Doolittle's planes were released early, at least 120 miles further east than planned for, it did give the task force a head start in its dash back to Pearl. And though the Japanese 5th Fleet did send out carriers, submarines, surface ships, and aircraft that flew out 700 nautical miles, the task force would evade them all. And yet, there was an episode that reminded Halsey and Nimitz, if one was needed, that their pilots and gunnery crews needed more practice. On April 24th, the day that Admiral Yamamoto called off the hunt for Task Force 16, the Enterprise and Hornet had Wildcat fighters aloft on air patrols. Also, dauntless dive bombers were flying 200 miles out of the ever-moving center that was the task force in search of enemy ships. It's always best to find the enemy before they find you. Just after noon on April 24th, the Enterprise's radar detected an enemy long-range patrol plane about 36 miles away. Fortunately, the Japanese scout plane did not stumble across the task force and had no radar. Thus, it stayed ignorant of the Americans' presence. At 2 p.m., a dauntless dive bomber came across two picket ships to its east, so in between the task force's current position and Pearl Harbor. The Japanese patrol vessels had to be taken out and quickly, and they were taken out, but not quickly and not easily. The Dauntlesses went in and eventually sunk one of the ships, but it took time, too much time, and too many bombs. In exchange, the guns from that picket ship damaged a Dauntless enough that it crashed, going down near the cruiser Nashville. The ship's crew, though, saved the air crew. This left a lone enemy ship. The Nashville was ordered to break away from the task force to engage, and it did at 2.09 p.m. As the cruiser closed in, an aircraft from the Hornet strafed the wooden 90-foot enemy vessel. Then the Nashville let loose. A plane from the Enterprise soon reported that the Japanese crew was trying to surrender. Halsey ordered the Nashville to take prisoners, but if anything strange happened, to sink the ship and then look for survivors. But as the cruiser closed in, it seemed that the pilot got it wrong as the picket ship opened fire on the Nashville. She replied in kind at 2.24 p.m. First, she moved in closer, 
then placed herself among the wave troughs so the two ships would be going up and down together. An improvement over the dealings earlier with the Nito Maru. In time, the picket ship did go down, but it took 167 rounds. Again, better than the plus 900 from before. Five Japanese crewmen were rescued by the Nashville. That was the good news. Halsey was later told that his aircraft had used 12,650 caliber rounds, 830 caliber bullets, 12 500-pound bombs, and 24 100-pound bombs just to sink the first vessel. This would all be reported to Nimitz, along with a strong recommendation to have all crews practice, practice, practice. Task Force 16 pulled into Pearl during the morning of April 25th. As for Doolittle's raiders, all but one of the crews crashed short of their destinations in China. Captain Edward J. Ski, York's plane going against what Doolittle had said, went north to land in the Soviet Union. But more on that in a moment. The rest that went for China bailed out before their planes ran out of fuel. Ten planes crashed while over China, and the others went down in the East China Sea. The fact that these crews were helped by Chinese civilians or military personnel was enough for the Japanese to justify harsh reprisals. For the next three months, some 200,000 square miles of China were searched for the Americans. And in that time, in a revengeful mood, the Japanese troops killed Chinese civilians. They also kept and occupied most of the ground that they had covered to help deny the Americans future landing strips. This Operation Sego saw Japanese troops practically wipe out the people of two provinces. Everything human-made or human-used was destroyed. Helping the Japanese in exterminating the Chinese civilians was their chemical weapons as cholera, typhoid, and dysentery pathogens were spread throughout the lands. With the American flight crews floating down, it was the sooner-than-released launch date, the time-change confusion, and lack of communication with said ground crews that caused little help for the pilots. Specifically, there was no homing beacons, landing lights, or flares to assist the pilots coming in. However, helping the pilots with their flying distance was a strong tailwind. But negating this was the ground crews or local Chinese turning off the landing lights when the engines of the B-25s were detected, as those on the ground naturally assumed that Japanese planes were coming in. So, not surprisingly, with these harsh conditions, three of the crewmen died while landing, and another crewman died while parachuting down. Two more drowned, having come down in the water. As for Doolittle and his crew, they were able to use the strong tailwind to bail out about 70 miles or 112 kilometers north of Chuchao, located about 300 miles or 482 kilometers southwest of Shanghai. The American leader was soon able to work out aid with a Chinese general of the western branch of the local province. This general, besides helping Doolittle's immediate crew, also promised to search for the other American crews. And now that he was on the ground, 
In China, Doolittle began to hear reports from Tokyo that nine of his planes had been shot down and that many civilians were killed, along with non-military structures being destroyed. Based on this and other information that reached Doolittle through China, but originating from Japan, he sent reports to General Hap Arnold in Washington that, in his estimation, his raiding force was lost. In hindsight, it's easy to say that Doolittle should have been more suspect of Japanese information, but given what happened with his flight after he released his bombs, the minimal visibility by the storm that he and his flew through, he was probably in a the-glass-was-half-empty state of mind. Indeed, even before the raid lifted off, there were written statements by Doolittle attesting to the fact that he was worried over the potential loss of his entire crew. But it gets weirder. When Hap Arnold made a report to President Roosevelt on April 21st, he wrote, in part, From the viewpoint of an Air Force operation, the raid was not a success, for no raid is a success in which losses exceed 10%, and it now appears that probably all of the airplanes were lost. As for the president, however, a politician, and ever mindful that this was a propaganda stunt, albeit on steroids, he reveled in the panic coming out of Tokyo and how uplifting the news was, with all its imperfections, on the American people and the Allies. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Back to Doolittle, as he waited to be taken back to Washington via Chongqing and then India, his depression grew. But it was short-lived, as some of his crews were soon found and gathered together. Still, overall, as the colonel thought that many of his targets had to have been missed, he believed he was going home only to be court-martialed. But these feelings soon evaporated as more of his men were brought together, along with the news that noted the destruction caused by his raiders. Doolittle was en route to Washington and receiving messages of how America's pride had been restored and that he was now a hero right up there with MacArthur. Of course, the general's hero status was mostly 
self-inflicted, whereas Doolittle had given the U.S. its pride and swagger back. Upon reaching America's shores, the colonel found that he was now a brigadier general. This was added to the Congressional Medal of Honor he received and the news that Hap Arnold had ordered that all of his raiders were to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross for distinguishing themselves for acts of heroism or extraordinary achievement. As stated, crews were taken to Chongqing, decorated by Chiang Kai-shek himself, and then sent to Washington. That is, except the crews that flew with pilots William Farrow, Dean Hallmark, and Edward York. Hallmark and York's crew landed in China, but in territory that was occupied by the Japanese. They all became prisoners. The two crews, all eight of them, two had drowned, were sent to Shanghai, but later taken to Tokyo. There they were questioned and tortured. The men signed documents that were written in Japanese that were basically confessions that stated civilians had been purposefully targeted. On June 18th, the POWs were sent back to Shanghai. On August 28th, their trial got underway, but it was only for propaganda, as the crews of the Green Hornet and Bat Out of Hell were not allowed to defend themselves against the charge of targeting civilians. Further, as the prosecution already had signed confessions, the Americans had been tricked into signing these and were not told what they really were, it was an open and shut case. Though all the Americans were sentenced to death, only Hallmark, Farrow, and Sergeant Harold Spatz were executed. These executions were carried out on October 15, 1942. The rest were given life imprisonment. All but one of these men, 2nd Lieutenant Robert J. Mender, who died of maltrition, survived three years of harsh imprisonment. As for York and his crew, they landed about 25 miles north of Vladivostok. Once the local authorities there were convinced that these were Americans, the crew was well treated. Though the Americans said nothing of their mission, it was soon obvious why they were there and what they had done. The Americans were interned, as Soviet Russia was currently not at war with Japan. But the American government still had to pay 30,000 rubles each month to house and feed these prisoners. Stalin currently needed every kopeck he had to stave off the Germans. Then, apparently, in trying to solve the riddle, how much testosterone can one group of men have, Edward York and his crew were sent by the Soviets to Okuna, 300 miles or 482 kilometers south of Moscow, but then moved to the western edge of Siberia. Later, they were taken to Central Asia. And it was there that York bribed a guard who helped the entire crew cross over the Iranian border. From there, York found a British official and received sanctuary for himself and his men. They had been in Soviet hands for 14 months. Now, one could argue between being a part of the raid and then being held against their will for just over a year would earn them a break. But when Edward York made it back home in May of 1943, he stayed in the fight, serving with a B-17 unit in Italy. This was the type of man 
that the Japanese, Germans, and Italians were up against. The Germans weren't the only country with supermen. Though the Japanese used Doolittle's last name to describe how ineffectual his raid had been, the raid did alter the Pacific War. As we will see when we get back to the Pacific Theater, Tokyo would keep an additional 250 aircraft behind to guard the home islands, just when they were needed the most as the Americans went on the offensive. Further, the Empire decided that cutting off Australia from U.S. convoys would give them more time to consolidate their gains. Thus, Port Moresby, on the southern coast of New Guinea, just above Australia, was to be taken. This would allow Japanese planes to harass any Allied ships that steered for Australia's east coast. Though it will be covered in detail later, this was the first incident that the Empire was checked in its expansion. Two months after this naval battle, the Americans would feel strong enough to launch their counterattack of Guadalcanal. And also due to the results of the Battle of the Coral Sea, two Japanese fleet carriers, the Shokaku and the Zuikaku, would not participate in the Battle of Midway due to a lack of aircraft. Thus, the Empire's tentacles, spread out in all directions, began to weaken. On a more personal level, after the Doolittle raid, the cousin of a Japanese pilot wrote to him the following. The raid has brought about a tremendous change in the attitude of our people toward the war. Now things are different. The bombs have dropped here on our homes. It does not seem anymore that there is such a great difference between the battlefront and the home front. Soon after the raid, Admiral Nimitz would have five carriers in his Pacific theater. Hornet, Enterprise, Lexington, Saratoga, and Yorktown. Still, Admiral Yamamoto wanted his Mahonian clash of the Titans, hence the Battle of Midway. It was Samuel Elliott Morrison, probably the greatest historian of American naval operations in World War II, that coined the much-used phrase, that the Empire's southern offensive was an insidious yet irresistible clutching of multiple tentacles. It was basically a three-dimensional version of Blitzkrieg on the sea, land, and air. And it was their land-based medium bombers, flanked by long-range Zero fighters, that was the tip of the spear of those numerous tentacles, if I may be allowed to mix my metaphors. Indeed, Imperial General Headquarters in Tokyo pushed up their invasion and occupation plans again and again in the South as local situations progressed faster than expected. And it was the rapid victories of the Japanese Empire, covered in the last 120 episodes, that sapped Churchill of his vigor, that caused General George Marshall to be as down as he allowed himself to be that caused Admiral Nimitz to be mentally and emotionally exhausted by April of 1942, that destroyed General Archibald Wavell's ABDA command, that gave the Japanese tens of thousands of Allied prisoners, that gained for them the control of Burma Road, which kept nationalist China in the war, that threatened the oil reserves of the Middle East through the Persian Gulf, that allowed the capture of all air bases, within range of Tokyo, 
hence the Doolittle Raid, that caused some in Tokyo to wonder if the Americans were ready to sit down at the negotiating table. And yet, somewhere along the way, in early 1942, the Japanese started planning and fighting against their estimation of the enemy, not the actual men and equipment, whereas the Americans were heading the other way. What had started out in Tokyo as fight, conquer, bargain, concede, now had given way to victory fever. Was it actually possible to push the white devil completely out of Asia? Back in early March, when Java was taken, the Imperial General Headquarters found itself three months ahead of schedule, as in their objectives had either been fulfilled or were on the cusp of becoming reality, which begs the question, what next? To which no one had an answer, as in there were no other plans in the cupboard. This was because, when zooming out, the military leaders had not really agreed upon an overall strategic direction beyond taking those territories that would help bring raw materials to the home islands. And it didn't help that the old Army-Navy rivalry sat right in the middle of this quagmire of an overall strategy. Indeed, even within the Army and the Navy, they had their own internal disagreements, thus polluting the way to a clear path. Some within the military wanted to switch over to the defensive. The Empire had what it wanted. It had what it needed. Now was the time to consolidate their new acquisitions, husband its resources, improve their internal supply lines, and focus on production to blunt the assuredly coming Allied attacks. This would be manifested partially by ramping up aircraft production and placing those very planes on the outer edges of their empire. So when the Allies came, they would pay a heavy cost in lost ships and planes while the Japanese lost relatively little in men and aircraft. This posture was sensible, economically effective, and militarily sound. But it wasn't sexy. It wasn't ego-satisfying. It wasn't samurai. The army wanted to go on dominating on the battlefield, and the navy, including Admiral Yamamoto, still wanted his decisive battle to finally crush Nimitz's fleet. But reality said that, with the United States' population and industrial output versus Japan's, it was best to build up their fighting capability, make the Americans bleed to the point that they would talk, and agree to end the war by late 1942. Any timeline beyond that benefited the Americans' industrial base. As for the British to threaten India, it was believed, was to threaten the British Empire itself. That was London's Achilles' heel. But this is where the Army-Navy rivalry truly showed itself. The Japanese Navy wanted to invade Northern Australia, but the Army would not commit the soldiers needed. What with having a million men in Manchuria and another 400,000 in China, but still unable to end the war there. The Navy wanted to take Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, to hem in the British. But again, the Army would not make the troops available. 
the Navy wanted to consider hitting Hawaii again, but maybe this time landing troops. But even to this, the Army said no as well. In the end, the Army-Navy bitterness dominated all else. The South Pacific would be fortified. Australia would be cut off from American ships by the taking of the Solomon Islands located to the east of New Guinea. And the U.S. Pacific Fleet would be forced into one all-out battle. It was either this or the complete annihilation of the Empire. As Admiral Yamamoto said after Pearl Harbor, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Postscript. I recommend now going back and listening to episode 299, my interview with Michel Paradis about his book, Last Mission to Tokyo. It covers the Doolittle Raid and what happened to the crews captured by the Japanese. As for the Japanese Navy's plans of strengthening the ring around their new empire, other islands, such as New Caledonia, Samoa, and Fiji, were to be occupied which is exactly what Admiral Ernest J. King feared the most, as it would make approaching the home islands that much harder and costlier in lives and time. 